Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Pete Newell is a nationally recognized innovation expert whose work is transforming how the government and other large organizations compete and drive growth. He is the CEO of BMNT, an internationally recognized innovation consultancy and enterprise accelerator that helps solve some of the hardest real-world problems in national security, state, and local governments, and beyond. A retired colonel and former director of the Army's Rapid Equipping Force, Pete is a founder and co-author with Lean Startup founder Steve Blank of Hacking for Defense, an academic program taught at 50-plus universities in the U.S., as well as universities in the U.K. and Australia. In addition, Pete is co-founder and board director of the Common Mission Project, the 501c3 nonprofit responsible for creating an international network of mission-driven entrepreneurs, including through programs like Hacking for Defense. Pete. Welcome to Village Global Solar Punk. Hey, Ian. Thanks for the invitation. Amazing background. Amazing intro. Let's give all of our listeners a little bit extra context here. So my understanding is at your time in the Army with the Rapid Equipping Force, you essentially had a budget of over a billion. My understanding is $1.4 billion to deploy for new technologies. That does not sound like the most common path. What led you from being a colonel in the Army to building and leading the rapid equipping force and being able to deploy that capital into emerging technologies. What was that path like? It was a complete accident. Tell us more. I want to have an accident like that. How does that happen? Steve Blank and I have this conversation about serendipity all the time. And it kind of if serendipity keeps striking you, it's because you're setting yourself up for the right things and you're accepting the pivots in life and taking them. And just to clarify, I was a colonel in the army as an infantryman leading tactical units in in Iraq and and all over the world. Being the director of the Rapid Equipping Force was an assignment for me. Wasn't something I built, wasn't something I achieved. In fact, when they told me I was going to go there, I had to look it up on the internet to figure out what it was. I stepped back from it and simply said, what did I do to deserve this? So so I literally, I was in Iraq. And at the time, the four-star general, General Ordiero, who knew he was eventually going to be the chief of staff of the Army, drifted through my base and long conversation. We had a great relationship, and he said, Pete, I think you have great things to offer for the Army. I think you're a future general officer, and if you don't mind, I'm going to take care of your next assignment. And, and generally what that means is he's going to go back to all the other four stars in the Pentagon and say, here's a guy, if you need an aide or an executive assistant or a military assistant or whatever else, then it's a file goes in a black book. And there are like six or eight people in this book. And then for everybody, it's like a new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or a new SecDef. They get the book and they're allowed to choose who they want for the book. Well, I was in Iraq, wasn't available until July. All the jobs were opened up in, in April, May. And when the book got done being passed around, I was the only file left. And of course, by by that time, there were no jobs anywhere. And so when Ordiano went back to the Army staff and said, okay, I got this guy. What can we do to help? And there were two jobs. One was to be the executive assistant to the Army G3, who's a, a three-star general. who's He's like the, the COO of the Army. 
it's a horrible job. And, and the other was the rapid equipment force. And, and the guy knew me and he said, well, Peter's not a kind of guy that, that wants to be an EA. And so we'll him the rapid equipment force. I, I have no background in acquisition or s and I don't have a hard tech degree. And suddenly I'm handed, you know, essentially it was the Ferrari of Skunk Works. And just to clarify, you know, Ralph at the time was a $160 million a year budget with 120 people that, you know, quite frankly, had no boss. The only guy that I reported to for real was the vice chief of staff of the Army, which is the number two guy in charge of the Army. And a single mandate that said, go find problems and solve them with emerging commercial technologies. Come back and tell us not just what the problem was, but what the problem was with the Army that prevented them from solving the problem. And that was the job. And the idea that, that I could take first to rebuild an organization and focus on extracting problems and then articulating them in a manner that other people understood them, not just within the DOD, but in a commercial world build groups around them, very rapidly build a contracting process to, to get them prototype, tested, and then rapidly deployed in Afghanistan, turned into a thing. And, and that thing allowed me to attract more money. So the $160 million budget, but I spent $1.4 in, in other people's dollars doing it because we were so efficient at the process. So I- I- incredible story. I love how serendipitous that is. You know, I, I think a normal person could have gone in there and spent the hundred sixty million and said, "Okay, I did my job." What was the driving force for you that made you realize you wanted to make this eight or nine times bigger than it was when you entered? What motivated you to solve these problems? Well, I think everybody was enamored with the mission of solving problems, uh, and I won't say that my predecessors, the guys you know who followed me, were small thinkers, but. Um, most of them were not willing to risk their, it's not that they weren't willing to risk their careers. They, they really fought different battles. Um, I came out of, you know, I think I was the first guy who was literally a tactical commander that ripped off the battlefield and said, here, go do things. And, and I looked at the org and I, and I really, I considered them a failure by that time. Because I looked at, at all the things that, that I was challenged with on the Iranian border and, and all the problems that could have been solved by an organization like this and realized that I'd never solved. And I found that they had become headquarters-centric, product-centric. We'll just turn out things that, that the generals and, and people like to see because it's, it's, I call it a publicity stunt, rather than realizing. And the rest of the issue was they build themselves as the antithesis of the acquisition system. And since they created this really friction relationship between the two, they said, look how good we are and how bad these people suck. We have the answer to everything. And, and that was, you know, <laughs> tantamount not true. They could do some things, but they couldn't sustain them. And what they weren't doing, and, and as, you know, General Corelli, who was the, the four-star, reminded me, he says, you know, if, if your plan is to come in here and blow sunshine up my rear end about how great you're doing and all the things, he goes, don't bother coming to my office. Your job is to come here and tell me what's broken in the Army so I can fix it. And I took that to mean not just solve the problems, but to look at the Army as a whole and say, why can't the Army be faster? And, and the reality was they could in the right circumstances if the right catalyst was present. And, and that meant somebody with seed money who was invested in actually getting more problems off the battlefield into people's hands. It's, it's not unlike you know, you know, what, what the venture capital world does. You know, everything's about deal flow. 
when venture capitalists protect their sources of deal flow, you know, like it's their firstborn. But you realize without without enough stuff coming in as sources of problems, your pipeline of delivery is rather anemic. So if you want a bigger pipeline that moves faster, you have to put more volume on the front end and more pressure on the pipeline. I was the first guy, I think, in, in you know the eight years they've been around who came in and said, I'm going to dramatically increase the number of problems we're looking at and use that knowledge to go after systemic change in the Army and then use that to help the Army actually be better. And that was a significant difference. The end result for me personally was I became addicted to the process. I never knew I was an entrepreneur and I still kind of fake it sometimes, but I never knew that that having that kind of freedom to completely expend myself against something was really what I wanted to do. That's why I say that in many cases, you know, that job made me who I am, but it also ruined my my military career because I, I reached a point that I realized I didn't want to be a general. I didn't want to be thrown in a closet and said, you know, I can't do anything because I have to follow all the rules. And, and that's really what, what drove the, the difference. I love it. And Pete, so you, you mentioned a lot of issues that, that you observed in, 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 in your background and, and in the army. And you also mentioned skunk works, right? And, you know, I think back of the skunk works of, of Lockheed's original skunk works and, and the, the culture yep. of army and procurement in the 50s and the 70s. And there, there's always this pressing need to solve problems because of the Cold War, because of the Soviet Union and all the issues. Is your perspective that a lot of the problems that you describe arose because times were just too good? Did that just breed com- complacency in, in the culture or, or over the last few decades? I, I think the the challenge is, you know, between 1960, like the late 50s, in the early 90s, you know, we went from, I'll give you an example. I think in the 50s, the Air Force, not the Air Force, Navy, developed and fielded over 17 different um, aircraft systems. And, and all of them went into production. And, and people realized that was super, super inefficient. And eventually came up with a much more efficient acquisition system that focused on, you know, we need to be able to mass produce certain systems to overmatch the the Russians and win the Cold War. And that that's what led us to this acquisition system that is very requirement driven. And it basically says you have to perfectly understand the thing you're going to build and then perfectly build it and then perfectly acquire it for a set price and then deliver it to the battlefield. That takes years. In the main cases, it's taking us years just to develop the requirements to, to build something. And then years to acquire it because it, you know because we've got these exotic systems, and then years to deploy them. 1990 and, and you know the mid 2000s, the world changed. And technology started moving faster, and the way people adopted and adapted technology went so much faster that that system was completely and utterly ill suited for the changes we saw in the world. It still does, you know, it, you know, if you're going to build an aircraft carrier, by all means, that's the system you ought to use. But everything you put on the aircraft carrier and in it needs to be done a different way because it's, it's just got to be done faster to keep up with the speed at which things are changing in the world. Now, that's the friction of the clash we see today. It's not that one is bad and the other is good. It's that we can't rely on one at the expense of the other. They both have to coexist in the same space. 
I love it. And with that in mind, maybe now, now it's a good time to ask you, what is BMNT and how does it fit into the dual use technology procurement world? So I came out of the rapid equipping force after having made the decision to retire from the Army. This is why I said that, that my time at REF ruined my career. And it wasn't because it was bad. It was because I learned what I wanted to do. And when I realized that the Army was not going to let me continue to run REF, I decided that, and I, I didn't think REF would survive another 10 years in the Army. I think the system was going to kill it. And in fact, it did. I decided that that this is what I wanted to do. So I literally, I spent time in, in Boston. I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley and had an idea of what I thought the problems were of trying to get emerging tech into the hands of, of soldiers and other people. So I migrated to Silicon Valley. I, I started a, a company called BMNT in the driveway of a house that, that Ian knows well and, and set out to do something. And quite frankly, we were clueless for two years. You know, it really was. We, nobody understood what it was we were trying to do, and I don't think we did either. But first, it was trying to help companies who were building things of commercial nature figure out where to go on the government. And over time, we realized that the, the real pain point was the government was not a good partner to commercial companies outside of the defense industry. So, you know, over time, we started to help develop processes and networks and connections that would enable the government to form better as a better partner in this this network of entrepreneurs and ideas and things that were out there. So BMNT as a company was, a, I'll say it this way, was the legal ed, entity we established to allow a bunch of really brilliant driven people to come together and do work. Over time, it has gone into a platform that first is focused at the enterprise level of helping large enterprise organizations develop disciplined innovation platforms, things that are driven by data, by good decisions, and closely match what you see in the venture capital world in terms of where they source things, how don't they curate the things they're going to work on, how they discover the right pathways to, to do something with them, and then how they incubate and eventually scale solutions. It is you know a classic dual-use process where we have had to work both sides of the government and the startup world and venture capital in order to bring them all together and create a language that everybody understands and, and can actually agree to. So BMT is part, what I say, enterprise level consulting company where we send people into government organizations to actually help them develop, build, and run their innovation practices. It is part early stage technology accelerator where we take small teams and small companies and actually help them move from being completely commercially oriented to actually providing a relationship between what they would build for the military and what they would build for a commercial product. It's showing how those two can be layered on top of each other and actually develop something. And then finally, it's, it's part venture studio is just... As you've seen, as, as we discover processes that need to expand, we actually build products for the enterprise. We have built nonprofits, the Common Mission Project. Uh, we have built programming at H4D. I have an AI company that is going to get spun out this summer. Ian, it's coming. We, we finally have a team to run it. It's all developed out of this process of 
to just finding things that aren't being done well and then figuring out how to do it and then opening up to other people's use. That's a really so, long explanation, but but that's what no, that that's that's great and very excited for. I don't I don't want to reveal the surprise, but excited for this uh, spin out coming soon. Most people, Pete, don't. Most founders have no idea how to even approach working with the government. You talk to someone and you explain, hey, something you built has a dual use capability, or maybe somebody's founding something and says, hey, I think there's this problem here. I want to go solve it. You know, I was in those shoes in the early days of Synapse. What advice do you have for founders who are looking to work with the government? Where do they even get started to understand what the options are for funding, how to figure out needs, how to figure out the problem statements on the government side? Of course, you and C-Blank have this class hacking for defense that helps with that. But for our listeners who might not have gone through that or had that opportunity, how do you get started working with the government as an entrepreneur? You know, one of the things that, that we built at, at BMNT is called a Defense Investor Network. And so there are probably, I don't know, 160 investors who are interested in the dual-use investment thesis that, that Ian, you and I talked about years ago, uh, the, you know, the potential to use seed money to develop a concept that then uses government dollars to actually build features to a real product and, and actually do so that makes makes a, a company more attractive to more venture dollars. So one of the first steps to tell is, is go look at your venture capital partners and ask that question and, and see if they are not part of an organization or someplace that already has access to a group of folks like us who do that for a living. And, and that's an easy first step is just look around you. Yeah, obviously, looking at the SBIR announcements that comes out is interesting. Sometimes that requires a little bit of trans- translation. There are you know, a number of programs run by the, the National Security Innovation Network, the, the Defense Innovation Unit, Naval X, and AFWorks that are all focused on, on drawing in more. You know, sometimes I just tell people, you know, the first thing you have to do is talk to people. You can research the internet online, but, but find somebody in one of those organizations to talk to and start making connections, you know, whether it's us or somebody else. It says, if you have a product or an idea, that works in a commercial space and you think it might have an application to DOD or the government, then there are people that you can talk to who will say, hey, or will actually kind of point you in a couple of directions for the next two or three conversations. And Pete, one of the lessons I remember internalizing in my journey of working with the government was this idea of as you begin that process and you start kind of going down that innovation path, there's this almost ping pong back and forth between the commercial side and the government side. Can you explain that to everybody and kind of explain that balance between you can't just go all in on government and if you go all in on commercial, you're gonna miss government and how to build for both? Yeah, I think it comes down to understanding what value the government will lend to you early on. And I think as any founder knows, you don't take venture capital money from people that, that won't bring value to you other than just cold hard cash. You're really looking for people to help you build a company. Your relationship with the government is no different. So so the way it starts is, you know, if, if you're a founder and you've been able to attract what I call friends and family money, pre-seed money, and you have an idea that you're turning into a concept, there is a point where if there is a military use or a military problem that may be closely aligned to the commercial problem you're solving, 
there's an opportunity for you to apply for government grant dollars, call it SBIR phase one or phase two, that will actually provide you non-diluted cash, which means we're not going to use your equity, but you're going to actually get money to do real work on that concept or that capability in terms of building a, a prototype and actually delivering a product that people are going to put their hands on and they're going to break and they're going to give you feedback and they're going to tell you all kinds of things that they're quite funky. You can't learn without spending a lot of money on the commercial side of the business. If, if you learn how to layer them, you can actually take your seed money to get to the point where you can get more grant money within the military and get access to the super users who are going to teach you things. That learning then enables you to go back to, let's say it's your first seed round, it actually become more attractive to investors, not just because you know more about your product and your market, but also because you've expanded the market base to not just commercial, but also government. But more importantly, because you've done a bunch of learning without burning up your equity in the company, which obviously makes you more attractive from a commercial standpoint. Carrying that forward, you know, everybody's you know, heard about the valley of death of, you know, the government says, that's great, we want to buy it. Just wait right there for two years and we'll get to you. It's classic is that if you come out of an SBR phase one, phase two, you know, potentially looking at a phase three contract, which is actually a, a production contract or something, that's going to take some time. That's the time you go back to the venture world, say I'm raising a seed round or a series A round, and now I'm going to work on the commercial aspects of this thing and actually develop more features and, and build a better product that when the phase three comes around, I'm actually able to deliver to the government more efficiently at a higher level than the government had expected before, which will cause them to put more funding into it, which allows you to get dollars. You know, it, you know that's real contract product developing dollars that once again, make you more attractive to folks in venture capital. It doesn't work for everybody, obviously. I mean, there's a there's a clear got to figure out what the commercial use and the military use is. And sometimes they're diametrically opposed to each other. But but for those things that it does fit, it's a really powerful investment thesis that you could follow. And Pete, I, I'm so glad that you brought up SBRs programs because that's that's something that, that we wanted to talk to you about. So is, is it your view that SBIR programs need to change? And if so, how? And if not, how, 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 how do we cut, cut out the waste? I think you have to be specific to, to whose SBIR programs are talking about. I think, and if you don't understand that, you know, the National Science Foundation runs SBIR programs with the intent of commercializing things. The DOD runs SBIR programs with the intent on getting things for government use. And as you look at it from an entrepreneur, the NSF is helping me commercialize my product and build a better company. DOD is running an SBR program just to buy stuff. And it's not necessarily driven to make you a better company. So the what I consider to be the failure of the DOD SBR program is it's not helping you build companies. It's all about the product. It, and quite frankly, it has, it has created this environment where you have what I call SBIR mills. There are companies that, that are making tons of money just answering SBIRs and providing capabilities that people can look at, but they're not building companies. And, and, you know, one of the things that I would love to change is, you know, see change is, you know, if, if, if you're churning out SBIRs and you're good at winning phase ones, but you're not winning at phase twos, the value of what you're doing should go down. 
And, and it should be harder and harder for you to get a phase one if you're not producing something that transitions to phase two. You go back and look at the venture capitalists. If you guys had, you know, sources of ideas for future companies you invest in that never delivered something that you would invest in, you would probably get rid of the source. It's a waste of time. To me, it's so blatantly obvious when you look at the DOD, SBR program, that I have sources of things that aren't delivering a capability that I'm using. They're just really good at delivering capabilities with no CEO, with no intent to spin it out as a company and no plan. So, so step one is you have to be careful about what, which program you're talking about. The NSF program has its own challenges, but I, I think the, the beauty of, of being focused on commercialization first and then on product development for the government, I think, is a much better relationship. I, I think that parts of the two that you could actually bring together would actually be really valuable. And I love that, that you mentioned, you know, the helping to actually build a real company. You know, Ben Van Roo had a, a series of blog posts recently highlighting a lot of the issues that you mentioned uh, of the SBIRs mill. Right. How do you think about the gap between SBIRs and programs of record? And what can the government better do to really, you know, to your point, help to build companies instead of science projects? You know, and this is the, I call the, the fault of the acquisition system. And here's where it gets in trouble. When I was at REF, and I'll say this, I sourced something like 13 or 1400 problems off the battlefield created 860 distinct things that we worked on, turned that into 360 projects that delivered 115 specific items to the theater in Afghanistan and Iraq, and eventually transitioned 20 of them into programs of record. So for instance, if you ever seen Switchblade, which is the kamikaze drone being used in, in Afghanistan, that's one of the things that, that I invested in early in Afghanistan that's now a program of record. But watch what I said about the numbers. I went from 1,300 to 20. And by venture capital standpoint, yeah, that's, that's a really good track record. It's not unlike what you go through in the venture capital world, like seed to series D. The, the challenge with the government is they don't look at it that way. They say, you're going to work in this space, and then there's going to be an air gap, and you're going to work in this space. At REF, the reason I was able to make 20 things transition is I funded the transition out of REF dollars. The program of record, you know, one of the challenges, program of records have boxes on them. And, and the boxes have white space between them. So if you're working on something in the white space, no program of record is going to stand up and say, that's mine. Because they're not looking for more work to do with less money. Or they're going to say, I like that, you know, help me build something. Therefore, I'm going to take it. But they're not the right people. So the first part is finding a transition partner. If you look at the way, even from hacking for defense, the process that we work on is we start looking at transition partners as soon as we curate a problem. We don't even know what the solution is, but we're already looking at the transition partner and trying to bring them along with us over time. So there's not a, an air gap between the two. It's a natural handoff. At the same time, we're building the contracts and funding mechanisms that allow us to help that transition partner go from, I know I'm going to get the thing, but I still have to go to Congress and POM for something three years in advance. It literally takes a program record three years to get the dollars necessary to do something. So, so in the meantime, you can give it to the program record, but you have to give them the funding to maintain it, sustain it, train it, and, and deploy it. 
So, so without that funding that comes across, they're really hesitant to take things. I, I think, you know, a great example, I love what Afros has done in creating, you know, more companies getting SBR phase one than phase twos. The phase threes are a little murky sometimes because they're not necessarily only programs of record. But, but the challenge is program of record, hard. Takes years to crack into one of them because of those funding issues. First, they have to have a requirement. Now, if you haven't built a requirement, then you're not going to be able to get the program. The program won't have the legal authority to spend the dollars they want to spend on. That so, so I just say that process has to start at the beginning. As soon as you recommend recognize you have a problem or an opportunity, you have to start building the entire team that's actually going to transition to it at the end. The SBIR phase one, phase two, phase three are not set up that way, but there are you know great work being done by by the Navy in particular, or and a little bit by AFWorks that actually is helping thread those together. But there are folks that recognize that are trying to make change happen. And will you talk a little bit more about this gap after kind of the SBIR phase two, right? Like as you said, phase three is a little murky, and there's a many many years before you get to program a record. How should companies be thinking about that, and how, how do we address that gap or that problem? So, and I think the what's misleading sometimes is a lot of phase phase three contracts are it's a far based contract, but it's essentially a, a sole source that yes, I can buy you thing. We see what happens a lot of time is somebody issues an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract that says. Here's your contract for $10 million for five years to deliver your product. <laughs> but there's no money in it. So great, you got the contract. And I see this happen all the time that people say, my country, you know, a company was awarded a $100 million contract to do X, Y, and Z. And the first thing I say is, how much money did you actually get? And the answer says, well, we got $1.5 million down and, and there'll be something else. That's the challenge is it creates this false narrative that, that people are wildly successful. There's still this massive battle to get budgeted dollars put against something to transition. Most of that money is sitting in the program direct. And, and if the program record does not have a requirement built to do the thing, you're just not going to see the dollars. You're going to get small dollars from people all over the place, but you're not going to see a big long-term program. The, you know, even with, with companies like Android, who's, who's done fantastically as a venture-built company, they still suffer the same issue. They can win a big contract with SOCOM. They still got to get the dollars out of Congress and other places to actually do the work. So, so it really is, you know, I want to say a narrative you have to understand. You can work it for a period of time, but if you're working it as a linear calculation, this is first thing I'm going to do the thing, and then I'm going to win the grants, and then I'm going to get to here, and eventually I'm going to work on the transition partner, you have probably failed. You really have to start thinking about all those things from the beginning and identify the best opportunity for your company based on what you have learned through the curation process and through discovery to figure out what the pathway is that's going to give you the best opportunity. So is the answer not just hiring a bunch of lobbyists? Well, um, and, and actually, to take a step back, how do lobbyists fit into all of this, right? Like, where does, where does that apply to this entire equation? There, let me first say, there are very, very good lobbyists who know the business of helping you understand what the sense of Congress is, because Congress and DOD don't always agree with one another. But so it's a really, I don't want to say that Congress, no Congress, 
Lobbyists aren't evil. They're not a waste of time. If if you hire them at the right time, right place for the right reason with the right outcome expected, there are lots of lobbyists. There are not lots of good lobbyists. There are, you know, folks who are very, you know, whose first job it is to say, okay, I understand what you're trying to do. Let me try and connect you to people who will teach you the right words to describe what you're trying to do. And there's nothing like, and I call it this language problem of DOD's got a language, the commercial world's got a language, Congress has got a language. And oftentimes, you and I, and, and somebody from Congress, somebody, we can all have the same conversation and completely talk past each other, yet talk about the exact same thing because the words are different. So, so the first purpose sometimes, in many cases, the lobbyist is to help you get the language right. How do you describe the thing that you're building in terms of a capability that Congress is interested in? And then how do you find who's interested in that? It's almost like follow the money. How do you figure out who in Congress is the champion for what portion of what budget and what is it they're trying to do and who in DOD are they working with? And, and eventually, you know, where does that line all the way down to a PE line in the budget that goes to a program for them to do something? You know, I, I will tell you that that's an education that's worth gold if you're going to do government business. I got really good at it when I was at RUF of understanding where Congress and money went and how it got the RUF and, and how I was able to disperse it. And that's part of the reason I was able to invest, you know, $1.4 billion. Now, we're really good at it now at BMT. We really, really understand how money works in Congress, how the defense budget works, how venture capital works, and where those things land together. That said, if if you're a company that says, okay, I've got this big IDIQ, I got a phase three contract, now how do I get money to it? You probably really ought to understand where the money is coming to the program in order to get there, because you may play a role in actually informing members of Congress to what you're actually doing that might be value added to the government. So, so I just tell you, I, you know, there are lots of bad experiences with lobbyists, but I tell you, there are some really good ones out there. It's incumbent on you to understand why you have the lobbyist. If, if you're hiring a lobbyist to do business development, you're probably in the wrong business. If you're hiring a lobbyist to help you get an education, you're probably doing the right thing. So, Pete, on on that topic, you know, we, we also talked about SBIRs, and it's also very common for SBIR companies pursuing SBIRs to hire consultants, right? Is there, if there's a playbook, if if there is one, well, I am so, a consultant, remember? <laughs> right, right. So, so if there is a playbook to 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 startups in general, is it you know? kind of go on your own and figure it out by yourself? Or do you, do you really think that, you know, companies should play the game on the field, hire the consultants, hire the lobbyists? You know, I think Andrew, to my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, like has been a big proponent, proponent of like, you can't just reinvent the whole world by yourself. You have to play the game, play the game in the field. In the field. Is that right? Do you, do you agree with that thinking? I, I, I think, you know, Andrew uh, is largely... You know, a spinoff. I'll, I'll say there's annuals, a spinoff of Palantir, not Palantir, but the people. They're rather adept at, at playing in the field and understand that that it becomes a network. So if you're a young company doing this, that's the first thing is hire people who will help you expand your network into the places that you need to talk to. And I say it over and over again, it's about educating yourself and your company, of understanding where you fit over time versus, you know, where you are today versus where you want to be. So hiring consultants, you know, to help you understand the process of getting into the government's fine. A lot of that early on you could do yourself, 
But more importantly, if you have a great network, you can get a lot of help without spending a lot of money. You know, whether it's, it's uh, you know, from us. And obviously, BMT probably gives freely, freely, because our goal is to get more tech into the government. Largely, our clients are the government. But, the, you know, the Defense Investor Network, the venture capitalists who have done dual-use stuff for years have no problem looking at people and talking to them. So I think early on, it's not going yourself, but actually is, is if you're going to invest in something, invest in building your networks, both, both in the venture capital world, inside DOD, in policy places, so that you know who to go to to ask questions that will help you make progress. At some point in time, no kidding, you might need help doing something for a short period of time. And by all means, if that's the case, hire somebody and pay them well. Pay them well to do what they do, and, and then move on to the next thing you've got to hire. But I, I just consider all those things as tools that you, you buy when you need it, use it as long as you need it, and then move on to the next thing. It's a pretty rich environment. You know, and, and I can see where it could be confusing to people because they just don't know who to talk to or who to hire. Obviously, you ought to use the free stuff that's available to you first, but very quickly decide whether whether getting something for free is better than, than actually putting the dollars against getting somebody very specifically focused on helping you with a specific task. So Pete, given everything that you've seen with how our government is pushing forward innovation, the excitement from entrepreneurs that you've seen both domestically and out, outside of the U.S. with Hacking for Defense, given, <laughs> given all that positive, let's talk about the other side of it. What keeps you up at night when you think about our country and the future of our country? What are you most concerned about right now? Oh, I will tell you, they're the 20 and 30 year problems. They're not easy fixes. I can talk to you about uh, the defense innovation best, you know, the defense manufacturing base. I, I can talk about recruiting young men and women into the army or in the military. But there's so many things that, that are uh, generational problems. It, it, and I'll get the numbers wrong. So, so I think, you know, you're focused on the, the space industry right now. Space manufacturing is probably one of the most hardest things to get done right now. But there aren't enough people doing the jobs. And sometimes it's very simple. For instance, computer numerical controlled equipment operators, people who, who code the machines that do advanced manufacturing. I, I think at one point there were 1.8 million open CNC jobs in the United States. That's estimated to be closer to four or five million by 2030. We can't compete with other advanced countries to produce things if we don't have the people necessary to do the work. And I'll give you examples. You know, I was I spent some time on the F-35 production line with Lockheed Martin for a while. And and they in the F-35 is largely advanced composites, which is an advanced manufacturing process. Lockheed Martin, I think, in northern Texas has a relationship with like seven community colleges that run programs to get people schooled up on doing composite manufacturing. They literally hire everybody that comes out of the program. In Austin, Tesla is teamed with the Austin Community College to run an eight-week advanced manufacturing school, and Tesla hires anybody who comes out of that thing. DOD doesn't do that. So, so if DOD wants you know more welders to work on a submarine in Alabama someplace, that there aren't people who are there aren't enough people trained to actually do the work that's necessary in the parts of our country needed to do it. Now, extrapolate that further. As as we look at things like autonomous things that are out there, whether it's things like Valkyrie that I think Kratos developed, or 
at some of the unmanned autonomy things that, that the Navy's working on. The idea that we're going to build a thousand attributable unmanned systems in the shipyards that churn out subs and aircraft carriers is ludicrous. They're just not built to do that. So, so where is that stuff going to get produced? And, and by who? Through what education system? How, how do we acquire the people to do the work? And so, you know, we can talk all day long about, you know, out innovating and out producing the Chinese, but not with a supply chain that exists outside the United States. That's, that's one of those 20 and 30 year problems. Now, you back it up to where BMT sits. It's like, okay, so what are we investing our time in? We're spending a lot of time with the DOD office for advanced for defense manufacturing, Mantec, and other places, not necessarily looking at, at the technologies, but looking at the, how to train people. Now, obviously, the technology is required to train people, but there are also technologies required for production and that for new composites or new materials or other things that, that are largely a commercial application that are needed to support a defense base. That's the to kind of the high level where we're sitting today. In, in the face of all of these challenges, what is it that keeps you optimistic that you know we America broadly is going to be able to solve this? You know, I think the I, I go back to the need for a symbiotic relationship between the the acquisition system that was developed to, that delivers battleships and or not that, aircraft carriers and, and tanks and things, and an innovation system that, that actually delivers new technologies at speed and scale. And, and I recognized you know, years ago that part of the, the challenge is when you talk to people in the government about innovation, they have a thousand different definitions for what that is. They don't realize that people are just talking about innovation without a clue of what it actually delivers. So, you know, we in particular, Steve Blake and I have been working probably for the past year and a half hard on advancing the concept of an innovation doctrine that describes what the relationship between innovation activities are and warfighting. So what does innovation actually do that delivers a capability at speed and scale that is necessary for keeping up with the rest of the world? Now, how do you define all those terms related to it the system that delivers that, the roles that people play, how do you train them? How do you professionally develop them um, so, so that they actually function with that symbiotic relationship with, with the people who are, are trained and developed to deliver the FAR? And, and I think the failure of DOD for, for years now is they keep trying to tweak the FAR to be more innovative and do things faster rather than just say, you know what, we're writing an alternative. And if this is what we're doing, we're going to use this system and eventually it's going to move to the other one. Part of the problem, though, is, is we in the innovation and entrepreneurship world have never written a doctrine that says this is the product of innovation and why it matters. This is what we produce. This is what we're graded on. Instead, we're graded on you know, generating ideas. And as I said before, if somebody's giving you a lot of ideas and never transition to something useful, it's time, it's time to move on to something else. Pete. A, a amazing outlook on the world. And thank you so much for joining us on this and sharing kind of your experience and your wisdom. Very excited to get this out to all of our listeners. Thank you. 